I'm not going to fight with you. I'm going to agree with you every time. Um, and I'm not going to oh, stay gosh. out late. <laughs> that would be some great marketing right there. That's, that's what I want to see on your homepage. <laughs> You're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Now here's your host, Hannah Moore, a CFP and the owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Thanks, Charlie. Today on the podcast, we have Dave Grant, one of my good friends and founder of Retirement Matters Illinois. One of the things I most appreciate about Dave is his willingness to open up and share all sides of his experience, from the book he wrote about his first year as an RIA owner, to the articles he writes for the Financial Planning Magazine, to this podcast interview. We had a really great discussion and had to break it up into two episodes because there was so much good stuff and didn't want to leave anything out. Well, thanks for joining us today, Dave. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Not only do I consider you a really good friend in the profession, um, but you are the, I guess, founder, if you would, of Retirement Matters, as well as uh, the blog for Finance for Teachers, which is getting over 70,000 views a year, which is pretty, pretty incredible if you think about it. But first of all, before we kind of get into what you're doing today, I'd love to hear more about your, your story of how did you get into financial planning and what does your career path look like? Sure. So it all goes back probably about 15 years. Um, I was originally going to be a teacher in England where I'm originally from. So I went to school for psychology, realizing that that qualified me for nothing after three years when I was done for school in England. And then realized, okay, teaching is kind of something I've enjoyed um, as I went through that psychology program and working with people. And I had also been working at YMCA camps, both in the US and in England. And, you know, working with kids was something I got a lot of joy out of. So as I was working in YMCA camps um, in the US, being a camp counselor during the summer and taking a gap year before college, I came over for an extended period of experience. And kind of worked for 18 months with the intention of going back to England to do a conversion degree, which is, you know, a year degree to turn my psychology degree into a, an elementary education degree. My first weekend here, my weekend supervisor was this blonde math teacher. Um, so I kind of set my eyes on her and um, fortunately she did the same thing. She's now my wife. And so that's how I ended up staying in the country and, you know, we're happily married as of 10 years, two kids, living in the suburbs, you know, living the dream. But then realized I kind of had to put my teaching career on hold because if I wanted to do it here, my degree would have to just be scratched and I'd have to go back to school. So it'd be essentially starting over from scratch again. So I didn't want to really do that because I was kind of bored of school at the time. So I took my psychology degree and went into human resources and went into the whole consultancy field. Promptly got fired from that because, it, in my opinion, it's very dry, very stats-based. Um, and then realized, okay, now I'm out of a job again. Like, how does this affect our finances? So doing a lot of research around that, you know, found the CFP program online, just serendipitously, I guess. Started doing some of the preliminary classes in there without paying for the program and realized this is really good for me, but if this was a job, this would be great. And I mean, you can almost tell my naivety about it just there. So started researching, okay, can people actually teach others how to be good with their money? Um, and I was just you know, stumbling around in the dark at that point. Realized that it was actually a job. 
And there was actually some local firms around me that did it. There was you know, an organization called NAPFA and the FPA um, that these firms belong to. So I just started emailing people saying, you know, I'm in this CFP program just to make myself better. Do you have any jobs? Fortunately, one was hiring um, in the suburbs near where I live outside of Chicago. And um, they kind of took a chance on me, just you know, being this foreign boy who had no experience as you know, a module into the CFP program. And that's kind of where I began you know, being a power planner and moving my way up. So did you start out as a power planner? I had the long job title of a junior power planner which I think they wanted to save my ego from calling me a receptionist. And um, so I really was just sat at a reception desk, greeting clients, making coffee, scanning documents, um, you know, doing things that a receptionist would do. The firm I was at, their lead power planner left within a couple months of me starting. And so I actually took on her caseload after kind of badgering the people I worked with saying, why are you going to hire someone else? I'm right here. And so I went from you know scanning documents to then gradually taking on a 50-client caseload in the case of a year of being there and not having passed a CFP program yet. So it was you know, kind of a, a baptism of fire for myself and the firm, but thankfully it worked out. So how long were you at this firm for? I was there for three years. So that firm, um, actually, it shaped a lot of what I do today. I hold, a, hold them in very high regard. They actually went through a buyout in probably my second second year there, going from a all-female firm with me, the only guy, um, going to be owned and run by a male CFP who was looking to transition from the work he was doing on the institutional side. Um, so I kind of hit a ceiling there as they wanted to get all their planners at capacity. Um, the new owner wanted to take some clients as well. So as I then started talking to that owner about my career track, it was a case of, yes, you've passed a CFP exam, but we don't actually need another lead advisor right now. So you're going to kind of have to, to sit in that holding pattern for a while. That didn't work out for me. So I kind of had to find somewhere new. So kind of leading up to this and even going through school and coming over to the U.S., had the thought of entrepreneurship ever really crossed your mind? Like, was this on your radar at this point? Not really. Um, all the way through school in England, I was very much a case of, you know, I, I'm going to study. I'm going to find a job. I'm, I'm just going to kind of go through life the way that everyone else does it. And when I was looking back on that, it was, you know, I had something staring me in the face that should have told me this was going to be my life path. You know, my dad actually worked in human resources and a lot of, you know, human resources development and leadership training. And he went from companies and ended up going through a number of um, redundancies with those companies and just ended up starting his own firm. And so he's run his own firm since the age of you know, me being 15. So it's something I've seen. It's been in front of me the whole time. I've seen the struggle that he's gone through and the eventual success. And the fact that it didn't dawn on me that that could be something I could do, I, I, I don't know why I didn't see it. But no, it did not enter my thinking that that would be something I was going to do. Okay, so you're at this firm, you're kind of at year three, you realize you don't have a future. What, what year is this? That was 2010. So I started in 2007. And that first job that I went through, I pretty much 
looked at clients going through the whole market downturn. So I watched clients go through it. I watched some very experienced advisors try and coach their clients through it as well. Um, and that was very eye-opening. You know, as someone who has never really had an interest in this thing before, realizing this money thing is so emotional and there's so much behavioral you know, aspects behind it. And you know, the numbers will be what they will be, but it means so much to different people. So at this point, you know, is 2010. There, I, I feel like that's right, kind of right at the point when people started, the young people especially started setting their own RAs. Like, did you have, did you see a lot of models for what you wanted to do at this point? Or did you feel like you're trying to create something new? That's interesting. Um, I mean, as I was getting to the end of my tenure at that firm, I knew there was a lot of platforms in place that could make you know, running and setting up a firm something that wasn't as hard as it was made out to be. You know, there's a lot of providers coming into the space. I think, you know, REA in a box was a big compliance provider at that time who just made things seamless. There's a lot of software platforms that I didn't use at the company I was at, which I knew would make the job I was doing far easier. So I knew how I wanted to design a firm. I just knew I wasn't ready yet. So that's why I realized, okay, I need to I need to still have a job, have an income. You know, at this point, me and Sarah, my wife, had a, a newborn son. So it really wasn't the greatest timing to actually go out on my own. So I kind of had to stay where I was. You had your first job for three years. And then what was, what was the next step that you made? Well, I really wanted a firm that was concentrating on growing. Yeah, the firm I was at was, you know, in a great spot for where the owners wanted it to be and the advisors wanted it to be. But there was no deliberate marketing strategy at that firm. You know, their marketing strategy was all of our growth comes from referrals. And if it's great, it's great. If it's not, then, oh, well, we'll just do what we're doing. So I wanted to go to a firm that really pushed advisors to grow and do a lot of business development, had a deliberate plan in place, and was you know, very progressive with technology too. So I got most of that with the new firm I joined, which was another fee-only firm um, in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, very progressive, very much wanted me to, to go out after I'd learned the way they you know, had their processes in the firm, design my own marketing plan, do business development, and, and try to build my own base. I, I feel like sometimes there's a disconnect when we talk about like marketing plans of these firms. Like what, what, is, like what did they want you to do for like a marketing plan? You know, they wanted to charge me and say, you need to go out and bring business to the firm. So they left it very loose. What I realized is I had no concept of what marketing was and how to do it effectively. So I actually went through a training program by Kristen Harrod all about niche marketing. And you know, her program actually took me through you know, understanding who I enjoyed working with, what kind of problems I enjoyed solving for clients, who my social circle was, and what you know, people actually hung around socially, not even professionally. And that's where I realized, okay, the teaching world is where I really want to be and become a specialist in. And then I had to go back to the firm and say, this is what I want to focus in. And here's how I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to go ahead and do some content marketing. I'm going to be a um, speaker in school districts if I can get my foot in the door. I'm going to use my wife's network and my family's network of teachers just to understand exactly what I should be focusing on and try and tap those people for clients too. Um, and then just continually reevaluate it to see what's working and what's not and what new things to do. So how did the firm respond when you said that you wanted your target market to be teachers? I think they humored me. 
Um, I know they were happy that I was going to go to a marketing plan because I, you know, they had one advisor who was very good at marketing. Um, so I think they wanted, you know, some other people out there doing business development. So, so they didn't have to rely on just one marketing plan, but that firm was an asset gathering firm. You know, they did do financial planning, but they did view it as a loss leader. Um, and they knew, and I knew that teachers were probably not going to be big AUM clients. So it was a case of, you know, they wanted me to do it, but they wanted me to stop in every now and again to say, okay, here's how it's going. And I think essentially they wanted a, the chance to say, you know, great job for trying, but we actually want you to go another direction just so you can actually get in front of people with assets. So I'm curious, how did your, how would your compensation change if you started bringing clients into that firm? It was an interesting setup and I'll give you some background. The firm originally was not a fee only firm. They were an LPL shop to start off with. So they were, you know, direct brokers with LPL. Then they moved to being fee based and still working with LPL as their broker dealer. And then they moved to being fee only still with LPL as a broker dealer essentially not a broker deal at that point, it was a custodian. So I had never seen a fee-only firm with all my research being you know, with LPL as a custodian. So it made it a little interesting at that point. But then the fee structure in terms of compensation was a fixed salary. And then as you started bringing in assets, your fixed salary would then change to be you know, a portion of what the revenue that you were bringing in. And you'd essentially move across the sliding scale of you know, once you've bought an X amount of assets, then 80% of your salary is fixed. Once you hit another level, then it's 60 and you keep on going down. And that fixed salary was for supporting other advisors working with their clients. And then once you had your full client base, your salary was based on solely what book you had in terms of their assets. It's interesting hearing that's very much a broker dealer model or kind of a version of it in the fee only space. It is. And the firm I was at previously didn't abide by that at all. It was fixed salary and you got bonuses based on the growth of assets and new assets that you bought in. So same job, completely different salary structure. So it was, it was interesting. Um, I knew it wouldn't work for me in the long term, just because the type of clients I was going for, I would end up starving under a broker dealer type compensation structure. So you've done this coaching program with Christian Herod and you, you kind of figured out your niche. I mean, what, I feel like you're trying to do something kind of really out of the norm, if you would, of probably what you're hearing from your firm. Like mm. what were kind of your like thought progressions or like, where did you go for resources or like kind of who helped shape your view of like, how do you actually service teachers? I mean, a lot of it was a lot of trial and error. Because I tried to look for people who were working with teachers in the fee-only space and could only find, you know, a handful across the country. Um, you know, some of them would say on their website, you know, we serve everyone, but we kind of work with teachers too. And that wasn't really what I was looking for. I was looking for people who were, you know, all in, this is our marketing plan. We love the educator community and this is what we do. You know, there was, there's more people in that space in the university field just because there's you know, it's a whole different game in the university field versus K through 12. So I was really you know, saying, okay, let me focus on Illinois teachers. I can't really find anyone who's doing it too. Let me just try some things and let's see what works. 
So, you know, I was pulling lists of, you know, thankfully in Illinois, all the compensation structure for teachers is all public. So I can Google any teacher in the state and find out what they earn. So I was pulling up the top two to 300 earners in a, you know, 20, 30 mile radius from me. And I was emailing them questions, you know, saying, what are your pain points right now? And then I was emailing them and mailing them very well put together brochures of here's a pain point that you know, some people have mentioned to me that people in your career path are going through. Here's my thoughts on it. Some people loved it. Some people told me to go away. So then this was why you're still at that firm. Is that correct? Yes. That was while I was still there. How long were you at that firm for? That was just under three years I was there. And it got to a point where, you know, I still wanted to explore this teacher niche to see where it would go. And I was probably a year into it. And the main rainmaker advisor who was at the firm was on his retirement track. And he worked with oil and gas executives, bringing in a lot of AUM per year. And so they came to me and said, you know, we're kind of lining you up to take a portion of his book, but we need you to be a tax specialist to be able to do that. And taxes is one of my least favorite areas when it comes to planning. So I you know, said, that's, that's not something I want to focus on in terms of my career. Like, I'm not strong in that. I don't think I would be able to provide, you know, a lot of value that, A, I could find joy in, but also that I could do on a sustained basis for clients. So that was really probably one of the main points that you know, we really didn't see eye to eye on in terms of where the company was going and me being involved in the company. And also at that point, I'd realized there's a lot of inefficiencies in both the firms I've been working at that can be resolved very quickly by implementing software. And I knew just from having conversations with different people at you know, the company I was at, it was going to be a long road to implement any major changes, just given the size of the company and how many people were involved in the process. So it was getting more and more appealing to start my own firm at that point and just call the shots on everything that I wanted to do. So this is really interesting to me because I hear from a number of advisors who are either working at firms right now and they're, they're cr trying to decide, you know, should I go out on my own or should I not? So it sounded like, and correct me if I'm wrong, they were saying, you know, there's this very successful advisor who we want you to take over part of their business, basically like a succession plan. And you opted out of that to start your own firm. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I was working alongside another advisor who was probably two years my junior at that point. He looked at me like I was nuts. He's like, it is being given to you on a golden platter here. You're going to get 50 to 60, well, it's probably a little less. You're probably going to get $40 million under management that is going to grow over time just because this natural market that we have. Why are you giving that up? And it was, you know, that wasn't what was driving me. You know, I really didn't care about what was being on the plate. If I was unhappy where I was, then I was out the door. Um, you know, in terms of my personal makeup, if I am unhappy in any way, my body lets me know. And it's not a pleasant place to be in. So it's you know, a lot of mental anguish, physical you know, anguish. And it's just, my body does not like being unhappy and under stress. So I had to remove myself from the situation just to get myself on a better playing field. That younger advisor has now taken that book, is doing very well for himself, but that's where he's comfortable and that wasn't where I was comfortable. 
So you left that situation to go jump into entrepreneurship. It's the easier route. That was pretty much the only option I saw at that point. Yeah. It was either going to be, okay, I'm going to go to another firm and do this all over again, or I'm going to try and figure out, you know, can I run this thing by myself? That was kind of the inflection point for you was when they said, you know, hey, we want you to be this tax expert. And you were just like, sorry, guys, can't do this. And then how much longer were you still at that firm? Like, what, Just to kind of give perspective. Yeah. So I think that conversation happened two years when I was there. Um, I was there for another 10 months after that. And that was really the case of, you know, going home, talking to my wife, saying, this is, this is it. Like, I'm, I'm either out or I'm finding another job. You know, that's when we had a second child at that point. So we had two children under three. I, that wasn't ideal. And it was a case of just building up savings at that point, figuring out if I could do part-time work after I left and, you know, getting everything in place so that as soon as I left, things were up and running the next day. So one thing I wouldn't suggest, um, and I, I didn't do this too well, is, you know, trying to figure out how to do my day job, but also get things up and running at the same time. Um, I probably used too much time during the day in terms of thought process and talking to people about leaving to do my own thing, not giving full commitment to my current employer. Um, but at that point, I was at my wit's end. I was like, I, I got to get out quickly and I need to figure out a way to do this now. What did your firm know as you were leaving? All I can say is that firm is a wonderful place to work. And <laughs> I would encourage people to um, evaluate all companies evenly if that company is in the mix for a job for them. That's all I'm legally allowed to say at this point. You leave there. And so last day of the job, the next day you're starting your own RA. Is that right? Yeah, I left um, early summer. I left on a Friday afternoon. I was up and running on Monday morning. What happened that first week? Like, what was that first week of like freedom like? <laughs> um, it was a whirlwind. It was a lot of work in terms of, you know, I was thinking, okay, I've left. I've spent a lot of time getting things up and running. Um, yeah, I was working at least 12 hours a day for that first week. Um, and, you know, subsequent months after that. But in actual fact, the first week was actually quite nerve wracking saying, okay, I have now, I don't have a salary anymore. I don't have clients anymore. Um, I don't have much income at all. It actually turned out that um, I'd been writing for Financial Planning Magazine. I had a column there, I still do. And they actually knew I was leaving just because I had spoken to them saying, you know, I would love some more writing opportunities and you know, to earn some income from writing. They turned around on the Tuesday and said, we would like you to write a diary and do three days a week of exactly what it's like, warts and all, of starting your own firm and running it, and we'll pay you. And, you know, I jumped on it. I mean, I was writing as soon as the phone hung up because it was great income. It's a great first entry. It was. Um, I think I was a little spoiled at that point because I essentially left my job and I had another part-time job at the same time as well as the writing. So I only lost about 20% of my income in the first couple months. Wow. So it was, it was very, it was good, but I realized, okay, this isn't why I left to do this work. My job is to actually build an RIA and actually have a number of clients to work for. And that's going to be my main income. So I didn't want to get too disillusioned with it. So that financial planning piece where you kind of journaled out like what the first couple like weeks or months were of starting your RIA, is that out for listeners to go find? 
Yes, I actually put that piece into a book. It's called The First Year, The Diary of a New REA Owner. It's on, you can go to my website at Finance for Teachers. It's there on the books page. It's also on Amazon as well. And that's actually a year of, essentially, I, I didn't want to put every post in there because some of them were a little bit of filler and not really killer. So I took out the most pertinent posts that are good for people in the first year to understand. There's also some longer posts in there, which are actually bookends. So I did a you know 1,500 posts, 1,500 word post on the start, and a 1,500 word post reflecting on the first year, um, and then the post in between. It's like very snapshot posts of you know 300 words. Here's something to learn and take away, either something to do or something not to do, just based on what I've gone through. So people can really get that inside look of what the first year of an RAA is through that book. Yeah. And it's a looking at everything. It's looking at client acquisition or when technology goes wrong in a client meeting and how I should have prepared for that. Or when the colors you've chosen for your branding actually look different from when you've chosen them and how not to rip your hair out at that point. You know, it, we cover everything that goes on in that first year. It's a great resource for people who are, yeah, really looking to start out from scratch. So what, okay, so, you know, the first three months, your income, you're at 80% of what your income was, and you're most likely a flying high. How was client acquisition? Because I feel like that's one of the huge hurdles that people have to start mm -hmm. their own practice. Yeah. I mean, I did have some people that were waiting for me to start. Um, there was a couple people that followed me from when I was working at the previous company who were teachers who then came with me. Um, there was a family member who knew I was starting who essentially signed on in the first three days of me launching. Um, so I was very much on cloud nine at that point. And it gradually got down to cloud three and cloud minus nine. Um, it, it did not stay up there. And, um, you know, client acquisition was hard. You know, I was still trying to get my foot in the door of this niche and, um, you know, had some contacts and had some speaking arrangements but it was still hard work and a lot harder than I thought it would be. So, it, and I think a lot of that was, you know, based on, I put all my eggs in this teacher basket. You know, I knew that the market was there and I knew that they needed help, but I didn't realize how long of a lead cycle it would be to actually have someone who's interested in you go all the way from initially hearing about you to signing a contract. It's a very long cycle that I did not realize. And, you know, looking at a lot of the niche advice that's out there, I mean, that's kind of what they tell you to do is to put all your eggs in that basket, isn't it? They do. Um, I mean, I've been on both sides of it and I'm actually straddling it right now. And we will probably get into that in more detail. But if you're going to go the niche approach, a lot of the advice is, yes, become that specialist, get right down into the nitty gritty of what your client's going through and become the expert in their situation. I mean, it's sound advice. I mean, I can't say anything against it, but you are, you're betting on that one horse. So you really have to know your market research. You have to know that that client base is going to pay you. I've seen some advisors where that has paid off in the first year and they're doing great. Others have tried it for six months and realized, A, I don't know if they're responding to me or not. Um, and B, I'm not really sure if this is a niche I want to be in. Um, and then they've gone back to being a generalist. So I'm of the mindset of niches can work for some advisors. Other 
advisors, being a journalist is just fine. You started out, so this is 2013, and you started out with Finance for Teachers. Yes. Now, Finance for Teachers, is is it still open for business today? or? Yeah, so that was the name of my RIA for the first three years. And it was a case of, I ran my business through there, my blog was hosted there. It's now just a blog and a bookstore. And... You know, it still gets a lot of traffic. The traffic keeps on growing, and I've slowed down my writing there a lot. Um, you know, in 2016, there was 70,000 educators who went there. I got a lot of leads from that website too, as it started to pick up traffic, and I started to get backlinked from other areas. You know, 2017, just based on other places it's been mentioned, um, we're trending on about 100,000 visitors. Okay, so are those. Are the visitors converting to clients? I would say they're converting to leads. So I probably get about two or three prospects a month from that website. And you know some of those conversations are good. I would say they're good if they are Illinois teachers who are nearing retirement. Those are really the, the key people I try and try and provide value to. You know, I had a phone call with a teacher out in Georgia this past week, and you know, I don't know the Georgia pension system. And I very much was up front with her saying, I specialize with teachers in Illinois. I cannot have a conversation with you off the cuff about the Georgia retirement pension system. I will need to go and research that. And that turns some teachers off. I've had teachers in Oregon and Virginia say, that's fine because you're better than other advisors who don't give us a second look. Um, you know, if it takes you some research, that's fine. We just respect the fact that you're in this field and willing to help us. You know, we'll go along for the ride with you. So let's talk about the service model for servicing teachers. What does that look like? And how do you, how do you charge? What do you, meeting structure, things like that? Yeah. I mean, it's gone through a lot of um, evolutions. So I do an hourly model where it's priced at 200 an hour. And, you know, typically if someone needs a 403B review, um, you know, setting up a new one, getting an asset allocation in place, all of that, you know, I charge a flat 600 for that. If people want a retirement plan you know, on a one-time, not an ongoing engagement, then I'm charging 1500 for a retirement plan. For people who want ongoing advice, then I have an upfront charge and a $200 a month retainer. But that's gone through iterations. You know, I've had some teachers who are married to people who are doing very well in the private sector, and I actually doubled my retainer price, and they didn't blink an eye at that. But I knew I had to do that because there was a lot more complexity than other clients that I've had. So I've gone that route. Right now, I actually go back to just doing a flat fee regardless of the client. Um, and the reason I do that is because it takes the complexity out of the, the initial conversations. You know, I never want to go to a client and say, the fee that you're going to pay is based on how much you have. Because that, that's just not who I am. You know, my price structure is X. And that's it. And it just makes it a simple conversation. And so do you find clients want the one-time or just ongoing or what's, what's kind of the mix that you found with your client base? Yeah, I would say it's a 50-50 split at this point. I do have some people, um, typically younger teachers come to me and say, I'm looking at starting saving for retirement. I just need your guidance as to, you know, do I do a 4-3-B? Do I do a Roth IRA? I, I have no idea which way to go. And so I just guide them through that process. There's... You know, teachers who are further on in their career saying, I respect what you do. I don't want an ongoing plan. I just need you to look at you know, my retirement projections and tell me what to do. 
So it's, you know, that's my hourly work. I then have, it's actually interesting. I have a lot of either single or divorced female teachers who are on my ongoing platform and they want someone to walk through their finances, do a comprehensive review, but also be there on an ongoing basis so that they can talk about their finances with, with someone, you know, who they know and trust. So it's, it's interesting. You know, we've talked a little bit about like what that first year was like running the RAA. And one of the things that I really admire about you is just how open you've been about kind of that experience of running an RAA. Um, and I know you, um, we had one of my first podcasts, probably in the first 10 episodes, you and I actually sat down and um, somebody had written in a long email just talking about the struggle of their own RAA. And like we kind of talked about that a little bit and we'll link um, that in the show notes for people to find. But looking at like years two and three, like what, you know, from the outside, it kind of looks like you're living your dream. I mean, you're writing for Financial Planning Magazine. You have a niche market. You're doing what all of the marketing advice says. And and you're you're doing it your own way. Like I know so many advisors who'd be so envious of that. But what was kind of that behind the scenes? Like what was going on? Mm, Yeah, I have been very open. Um, And I'll give you a little preface as to why I've been that way. I have, I felt through the first essentially four years of being a financial planner, other than FPA NextGen, I had to find all the answers by myself and I had to understand what a career track was. I had to understand what I need to do to get to be an advisor because no boss would tell me and there was no career track. So I had to make my own. And so that's when, you know, FPA NextGen was great for the conversations, but I really wanted a fee-only version. So that's why I set up Net for Genesis. In terms of launching my own firm, there was no one out there talking openly about the struggle. You know, I would ask advisors, you know, 10 years in to say, what's the first couple of years like? And the major response I got back was, it's really hard. I've kind of blanked that from my memory. I'm like, fantastic. And now I'm buying your lunch as well. That really didn't help me at all. So that's when I said, I need to write all of this down because there's going to be people behind me who have all these questions and it is not fair to them to still have no answers. So that's what I've essentially tried to do is I want to provide the answers to people who are three years behind me in every stage of my career. So they then have a resource of, okay, this is what the career track is going to be. If I'm opening in my firm, here's what I can expect of the first year just based on what someone's been through it. So when I've gone through that second and third year, I'm not entirely sure why. I think there's a number of different reasons, um, but it just didn't work. It looks like, you know, things may have looked great on the outside, but I think that's a lot of what people portray. But I got to, you know, the middle of my second year and I had a lot of client attrition all at once. And a lot of that was my ongoing clients got to the end of their initial year, which is part of my contract. And they said, this is great. Like we've done a lot of planning work in this first year. We're going to go do it ourselves now. And we'll touch base in you know, 18 months when we need to have another couple of conversations. But I had half my client base drop off in the space of two months. And then I looked at my financials and I was looking at being out of money in three months. And it was not pretty. Like that was a case of you know, sitting back and saying, what am I doing? Like, have I actually been running a business or was this just a hobby that kind of paid me something to keep me afloat? So it got pretty dark. And I don't think it was that that made things dark. I think that was the trigger of 
something else underlying inside me that as soon as things got really bad, my mind just went black. And I, I kind of, I don't use the word wallowed, but I was stuck for probably a period of six weeks of just not being able to process what was going on, just going through the motions during the day. And, you know, I work in the basement. So completely changing my mindset and my face. And as soon as I got upstairs, yeah, business is fine. Kids, let's go play. Let's have dinner. And then going back to it the next day. So that was very difficult. And that was probably the end of, end of my third year in business. And I was about to close in two months from being out of money. For the advisor who's listening to this and is thinking of jumping out on their own and kind of hearing this, I mean, this is, I don't want to say warning, but it kind of is. And it's kind of the reality that entrepreneurs face. Looking at that person who's about to make this jump into entrepreneurship, how can they, what can they do now to help themselves in that situation that they're going to be in later, if that makes sense? Yeah. I mean, one, I think you have to understand that while the first X number of months and years is hard, you're actually signing up for a hard journey. You know, this isn't all roses. Like being an entrepreneur is a lot harder than being an employee because every decision is yours and you have to live by every decision, whether you're on your own or you're running a team. And when you make a decision and it goes well, it feels awesome. When you make a decision and it goes bad, it feels really bad. And, you know, I know there's the phrase that goes around that says you can have both of those in the same day. But when you continually have bad experience after bad experience, while you don't know how you're going to be able to go through that, you have to understand, do I have a support system around me if I actually do go through that? And that support system can be you know, family and friends, or it could be other advisors, or it could be you know, counselors in the professional setting. But you have to know who you're going to turn to when you realize you can't emotionally go through this by yourself. So that's one thing there. I think you've also got to be prepared financially. You know, a lot of people have, you know, mentioned this um, in you know various arenas. But if I don't think you can really understate it, I think if you are saying, okay, I'm going to go into business by myself. If you're married, make sure your spouse is going to stay in their job too, because you you have to have things uber stable if you're going to go out and do things on your own with no income. You've also got to have a good runway as well. Even if your spouse is going to stay in their job and you, know, you can actually live off their salary too, because you need money to actually grow your business. So having a, a good runway, I would say three years is a good space of time if you want to be conservative to say, okay, let's have my income covered for you know, three years conservative, 18 months being aggressive, because you're not going to be able to replace it in that shortest period of time. I had a conversation last year with an advisor who she was at her firm, the younger advisors, they were talking about ownership and all of these things. And one of the comments that she made to me, that just really stuck with me is she's like, it's like, she's like, I'm asking to sell something. She's like, they're getting it so easy. And there's not the recognition that like, they don't know what it was like to put the second mortgage on my house so that we could have our business. They don't know all of these sacrifices. And it's, it's really, I think, important to recognize, one, that if you're going to go the entrepreneurship route, that there are those really hard sacrifices that people don't talk about. And two, like if you're at a firm, it's important to recognize that whoever started that firm 
most likely had to go through some really hard stuff to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think when I hear, you know, advisors of our generation, I'm not going to age them because it can happen at various ages. When I hear them talking about succession plans that aren't going their way, I want to punch them because it's a case of, well, if it's not going your way, just go start your own and realize how hard this is. And then when someone younger than you comes along to say, well, give me a piece or at least sell me a piece. I'm like, well, hold on. You, you haven't worked for this yet. Like, I don't care how much money you can put into the pot. I want to see you cry, bleed and sweat for this before I give you anything of it. So I, I think having gone through building your own company, I have a completely different mindset about succession plans now. That recognition of how, how much went into it, I think is really important. I mean, I think a younger advisor is giving up the blood, sweat and tears if they're going to buy it. You know, that's yeah. the financial consideration. But if someone yeah. was to come to me in 10 years to say, I want to buy your practice, I want to at least know they've gone through, th through some pain. Because if you buy a practice from me, guess what? You're also buying the pain along with it. And I want to know that you can weather it for my client's sake. Looking at those, the three years, your first three years of entrepreneurship, because you're just now in the f beginning of your fourth year. Is that right? Yes. So summer 2017 okay. will be end of my fourth. Okay. So those first three years of, of your firm, did you ever make money to where you were even with where you were making before, even with your previous salary? No, I have never made what I've made before. Um, I think with, you know, I, and I'm very open with numbers because I think that's the fascinating part about what we do and about the entrepreneurial journey. I would say when I left the firm I was working at, I had transitioned into being a lead advisor. I was probably making about 62. When I left and in the first year, and probably actually the first three years, my salary stayed the same. Um, I essentially kept my business running as it was, did all the marketing and took all the rest as income. I was making about 32. So between 32 and 35 in the first one to th three years. Um, now I'm starting to trend above that just given the changes I've made. But it was literally what do we need to live on as a household now that I've lost my income? What keeps the lights on, food on the table, and we make no savings? It's going to be you know, a low 30 salary along with my wife's. That's what we've done for the last three years. Now, I'm very frustrated that our goals have been put on hold, but I know that that's the reality as well. You know, granted, I'm paying for daycare at the same time, so I wish my kids would excel academically and they could go to school at the age of three, but that's not a reality. And you know, that thirty-two to thirty-five thousand—that's including your writing. Is that right? Yes. So all my income would flow through into my S corp, so, which is you know named as the it was named as finance for teachers at the same time. So all my income would flow into there. Um, that would pay all the expenses of the RAA, and mostly all the client income would actually pay for that too. And so, and then everything else would just funnel back out as income just coming into our family. The 32 to 35,000 is after your expenses. Is that right? Correct. So gross, I was doing probably 55 in those three years and it would you know, cost about 20 to run my practice. And then I would take everything out. And that was, you know, extended writing stuff. You know, I was writing for financial planning magazine. I was actually picking up as much writing as I could handle in you know, writing for other financial tech companies, writing for other consumer sites, um, doing part-time work here and there where I could um, in the financial fields too. Um, 
and really just trying to get as much money as I could get my hands on while keeping sane and trying to keep the same vision of, I want to build my own practice. So how much of this income was actually directly from clients and your work with clients? Probably 50-50 split at that point. Um, mm-hmm. I was pulling in about 20, you know, between 25 and 30 from clients, which was essentially keeping my practice afloat. And then everything else was writing and um, you know, other side hustles that I was doing. Were you charging any fee for like asset center management or was this all just the flat fees that you were charging? I originally started off not doing AUM. So I had, that was initially my six years of working in fee-only firms. It was essentially the majority of the fees was AUM. And I wanted to see if there was any other model that worked. You know, I appreciated the hourly model and I turned clients away who wanted an hourly model previously and I didn't like doing that. So I initially did hourly and you know fixed fee, which was $200 a month. And, and like I said before, some of that went through iterations, but essentially it ended up being $200 a month um, for flat fee and then $200 an hour for hourly work. And so that was, again, a split. I would say it's probably a 30-70 split between hourly and ongoing work that led to get the you know 25 to 30 income there. A lot of the advice out there is like, you need to have a blog. If you blog it successful, then you're going to find clients through that. You're looking at last year, driving 70,000 people to your website. And, you know, the income, I feel like the income wouldn't match what I would expect it to match. And so I feel like, I guess what I'm sensing is that there's a lot of marketing assumptions that are made, but are those the reality? I think, you know, as you're looking at, you know, let's touch on blogs there in terms of you can have a lot of traffic from your blog. Um, But, you know, research says that people have to see you at least seven times before they're going to make a buying decision. If I don't write something that is pertinent to someone seven times, am I going to convert them as a client? I personally, I don't think so. I have to find a lot of value from someone before I buy from them. You know, at this point, I have about a thousand subscribers on that website. And some of those subscribers have turned into clients. But the majority of those people are actually people that I'm connected to prior to that. And that blog has just confirmed all of my knowledge and it's confirmed to them I know what I'm talking about. So it's, you know, people I've spoken to at seminars. And, you know, I've gone into school districts and given a presentation. I've got people's email addresses who are there. And then 12 to 18 months later, they turned around and said, I liked what you said in the talk. It's all backed up by your blog. Now I've reached the triggering point. Let's do some work. Right. So there's still a lot of value, definitely value in the blog. There is. I mean, there has been people across the country who have seen me, made an appointment. uh, Sorry, they've read what I've done, made an appointment, confirmed who I am and become a client. It does work. But I wouldn't say... If you have readership of 70,000, you're golden and you're hitting six figures with just client leads. It doesn't work like that, mm-hmm. in my experience. I think that's a really important point as people look up to start their own. And, you know, I've heard it so many times. If you just get a website up, they'll come. But yeah, not quite. <laughs> Stay tuned for the next episode where we'll hear what's next in Dave's story. If you're in the Dallas area, be sure to join us for the in-person You're a Financial Planner Now What series through the FPA DFW chapter. We'll be meeting on Thursday, April 13th at noon at the Milestone Group. 
You can find more information at fpadfw.org or financialplannerpodcast.com. We'd love to see you there. Thanks for listening.